You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Apparently a mouse showed its face upstairs, leading to a lot of stamping from my wife. (laughs) Hope that doesn't happen again. Welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, Today, we've got a a special roster here. We've got uh, Derek Thompson from The Atlantic, uh, Libby Nelson from Vox.com. And uh, we're here because this is my birthday, but it's also Libby's birthday. It's also Derek's birthday. And we are celebrating together. Happy birthday. But not just ourselves, but the return of things like birthday parties and and other things that we're we're missing from the world. Um, you know, I'm I'm that va- we're all we're all vaccinated, right? Yes, we are. We are. We could we could physically be doing this together uh, if, if if that were an option, but we we are we are still remote. This the CDC would have let us do it, um, but I guess uh, Vox Media would not. So no, but I mean that I think captures the slightly you know odd moment that we we are in right now. I mean, I was thinking, you know, what what am I going to do for my birthday? Like, can I invite people over? And I decided, like, yes, you know, I could because um, I know. They're all vaccinated people. I mean, I think, unless they're lying to me, we don't have a verified vaccine passport system. Uh, but like, what, like, what, what are you guys? What are you guys doing? Well, I was just thinking. You know, I spent so much of the last few weeks talking with people on the internet about the CDC and masks. And what do I want to do for my birthday? I want to talk to people online about the CDC and masks. So I'm excited, Absolutely. Matt, that you've invited me on to do this. Uh, this is ce- this is celebrating the pandemic and it's sort of uh, in- interminability. Uh, the fact that, you know, days seem to blend into each other, that even on my birthday, I am doing basically that which I would otherwise be doing. But no, I, after after I do this, um, uh, my wife has uh, bought me several gifts, including um, a cocktail flight tonight at Bar Mini in D.C., nice. which I'm extremely excited about. So I will be celebrating, I believe that is uh, indoor uh, cocktail flight um, uh, tonight in DC. That is, that's how I'm celebrating my birthday. Indoor cocktails. Wow. Libby, how about you? H- happy birthday, Matt. Happy birthday, Derek. <laughs> um, I was just thinking about how a year ago, as, as I think we all remember, it was it was a like, really terrible time to have a birthday. Um, I hadn't seen a friend in person other than like two minutes on the sidewalk in months, we were all on Zoom. And, you know, here I am on a birthday Zoom. So things have changed. <laughs> things have changed so much. Um, but I 
I originally had this big plan. Um, I'm fully vaccinated as of a couple of weeks ago. Most of my friends either are or are very close. I was going to have the first party. Um, and instead, my my whole family, who I have not seen since Christmas 2019, decided to come into town. So oh, I had like awesome. the most normal experience of the plans I made couldn't happen because other plans came up, which feels <laughs> like like of its own accord um, to be great. But we have, I believe, an outdoor dining reservation, but uh, we will have the four of us plus my fiance together for the first time in a very long time. So that's that's very exciting for me. That's- so, so Derek, so you you were sort of, I think, the um, one of the gurus in the uh, you know liberal internet in terms of telling people that they could take their masks off outside, um, which you know played into the rollout of vaccinations. But I, I think, I mean, tell tell me if I'm wrong, but I mean, I, I think a lot of that was simply like what we could have been doing all along, right? That the point is just that being outside, at least in small groups of people, is in fact a fairly safe activity. And, you know, Libby was reminding us of the situation of of a year ago, which I acutely remember. I mean, the, the best weather months in cities like D.C. just happened to correspond with like maximum paranoia about the <laughs> pandemic. But like, in fact, we probably could have like, me and some friends could have sat around in my backyard last May. Like we didn't necessarily need to be as isolated as we've been. Yeah, I totally agree with that summary. What I've been searching for over the last 12, 15 months is a kind of pocketbook definition of what COVID-19 really is in a way that I can understand it and I can help other people understand it. And the best I can do in about five words is COVID-19 is an indoor aerosol disease. It's an indoor disease, which is to say that it spreads much more effectively inside rather than outside. And it's an aerosolized disease, which is to say that it's spread from the spray, the spittle that comes when we talk and we breathe exertedly in like a gym, um, which means that it doesn't spread very effectively on surfaces. So people who have been reading me over the last 12 months have been reading sort of my crusade against the idea that we should be overly afraid about this disease outside and overly afraid about this disease on surfaces. And it's been really frustrating for me to see, you know, public health officials not emphasize this enough because I want to, you know, as they say, take the pandemic seriously. But I've also always wanted people to like live as happy and normal lives as possible while taking the pandemic seriously. And I think that if you came to this virus with an understanding that it's an indoor indoor aerosol disease, then you could be encouraged to take as much of your life outside as possible. You should be encouraged to take walks on the beach rather than, as California did, ban walks on the beach. You should be encouraged to share beers on your stoop with your neighbor rather than, as Philadelphia did, ban beers on your stoop with your neighbor. We should be celebrating people who are hanging out outside rather than, as many liberals did, scrutinize and shame people who seem to be too close to each other in parks or on beaches. So just throughout the pandemic, I wanted people, I wanted us to take it's seriously, yes, of course, but also within the context of understanding the actual routes of this transmission and living life as normally as possible. Because understanding now that this was a 15-month battle against a virus and not like a two-month battle, I think that 
you know, it was really about figuring out ways that we could uh, uh, live with this and respond to it in ways that were durable uh, and, and resilient. Um, and I saw a lot of sort of swinging from one extreme to another uh, in, in the last 12 months. Um, and I'm hopeful that if this does ever happen again, or if we are faced with a, a mysterious threat like this again, we, we, we discover that sort of pocketbook definition rather than sort of grasp for this more uh, complicated uh, strategy that we've had in the last 15 months. I think one thing really important that you said there, too, is the idea that, you know, this wasn't for two months. I've been trying to think back on, you know, would I be like overjoyed and thrilled about where we are right now a year ago? Or would I be horrified that it has been an entire year and we're only now starting to be able to do things again? Um, And I just I mean, I was very immersed in this. I was editing coverage. I was reading coverage. I don't think until maybe just about now. I people really had any kind of sense of how long this was going to go and how much isolation we were looking at. Um, and I do wonder if that had been part of the understanding from the beginning that we weren't going to have what I think Matt called a suppression summer and like get back to normal in the fall. Would things have been different? Well, and you know, I've always thought that there was a weird breakdown between I mean, some of this is that, you know, Donald Trump was a um, like a disorganized person. Right. And was not was not running <laughs> that is the thing you could say about Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, no. But I mean, but, but it was a little bit two sided. Right. So we developed, I think, a sense in the United States that there was the president of the United States and his American government that he was in some sense in charge of. But then there was the experts. Right. And the science and what the experts and the science were was not. Because it, it wasn't an organized government thing, right? It was some triangulation of Dr. Fauci, um, the New York Times uh, sort of health and science team, and the epidemiologists who are most prominent on Twitter, right? And like that was the the science, right? And in a proper country, it's like you would actually have a hierarchical uh, – you know, organization of the public health infrastructure. But we instead had a thing where what at least people like me, you know, like generalist reporters, what we would characterize as what the public health community is saying would be different from what the actual policies of the United States of America are. So at some point, the public health establishment, I guess, to use a word, switched from we need to flatten the curve to preserve hospital capacity to we should try to emulate Asian countries and like really minimize the spread of the disease. But the government of the United States, I think, actually stuck with the the curve flattening thing, right? So by May or June, you know, COVID wasn't gone, but like hospitals were not overwhelmed anymore. So Trump and other Republicans started saying, like, let's open things up. But there was this total breakdown where it wasn't like Donald Trump and all the leading people in their lab coats with their curve flattening charts being like, this is what we are going to do. And we acknowledge that like the disease will spread if we do this and some people will die. And if you are super risk averse, like you should take all these cautions. But like, we don't think it's sustainable to have suppression. Instead, he was like doing tweets. But then other people were freaking out. And I know people, I'm not like a pretty out of touch person, but I, but I I do try to keep tabs on the few conservatives in real America that I know. And like they were very confused as to what the liberals were freaking out about. 
because they had seen all these charts about curves and lines and they were looking at their local hospital capacity and they were like, yeah, I don't know, like, we got to open things back up. And that moment, I just feel like engendered this kind of culture war politics that we're still living with and that like dominates the mask debate today. Yeah, one thing that I've seen that's really interesting, just to pick up on what you were saying, Matt, is it's definitely the case that the top-down communication from the White House was unbelievably disorganized from the beginning, and that there was never really a sense of what the voice of the White House really was. This is something that actually is true beyond COVID, right? Mm-hmm. That, some, that I think uh, uh, Jay Rosen made the point that typically the White House is a stand-in for the president, but under Trump, the White House was this metonym entity that existed separate from the president. So the White House says X, but the president says Y. Under COVID, you had Trump saying certain things, which often made no sense. You had the White House, maybe represented by someone like Scott Atlas, saying things that might have been a little bit different and also sometimes didn't make sense. You had Fauci, who was sort of the bureaucratic insider in whom liberals placed their faith, who was somewhat related to the White House, but often, but or ultimately, I should say, uh, sort of pushed out of that inner sanctum. You had members of the CDC who are nominally representing the administration who might be saying something a little bit different. And there was sometimes a faith among liberals that the CDC really wanted to say X, but outwardly they were saying Y to keep in touch with the president. And that created a situation where there was sort of like an institutional authority vacuum in terms of what the US policy really was. Are we flattening here? Is this about hospital capacity? What is the goal and what is the disease? This goes back to sort of my effort to, throughout the last 12 months, to really define it in in five or six words. And in that vacuum, I think a lot of people on both the left and the right felt like they were their own private investigator piecing together a truth that was not being pieced together by authorities. And so I see this among my friends, uh, among Atlantic writers, people like Zainab and me who are, you know, spelunking through the New England Journal of Medicine and talking to people from JAMA and talking to people who are uh, epidemiologists who disagree with the official narrative and pointing out, for example, that uh, the CDC point, uh, uh, referencing the danger of fomite or surface transmission has no idea what it's talking about. And this, this disease doesn't spread from that at all. There is a little bit, and maybe t- tell me if you think this is wrong a little bit of at least a procedural analog there with what was happening among a lot of, I'll say, smart conservatives on the right who've been, or at least uh, clever conservatives on the right, who've been trying to piece together their own sort of appendices and, and, and little findings to point out ways in which the official narrative is totally bunk and this disease wasn't as serious as people thought and masks don't work as well and the vaccines don't work as well. I'm not endorsing those views, but I am suggesting A lot of people were drafted into the role of private COVID investigator, piecing together these little things they were seeing online to create their own private narratives that then they were sharing online. And that that was allowed by the fact that the internet is such a cornucopia of information and you can come into it with your ideology and your narrative and piece something together that fits it no matter what. It's very convenient in that way. But it was also, but, but that, that private investigator role was also downstream of the fact that the White House was just a total node uh, or vacuum on clear communication. And so it sort of fell to the public to piece together their own reality. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that actually was was pervasive, especially last year. Um, I have a, a good friend in Paris who's just now getting vaccinated. And as we were talking, one thing she said is, 
as people have started talking about the things they're doing again in the U.S., she realized that a lot of us have been more locked down than she was. And in Paris, they had like a legitimate literal lockdown where you could not go more than 600 meters from your house without a pass for like weeks or months. Um, but also when restrictions were lifted, people just did stuff because they had faith that there was some kind of central strategy. And it just always seemed like that was so much easier for them to be able to put their faith in some kind of like actual central strategy or at least have trust that like if they have listed lifted restrictions, it's probably because something has changed. Whereas here, I mean, there's just been a, almost a complete disconnect, especially last year for months between what the CDC was saying, what the White House was saying and what, you know, quote unquote, COVID cautious people were willing to do in their everyday lives. Well, and, you know, a, a lot of this, you know, Libby, you, you were talking about the, the, the sort of the, the COVID cautious people. And, you know, I, I wrote a piece about this, but a sort of fascinating thing that developed is a kind of, you know, subculture of people who were both cautious about COVID, but also had white collar jobs that could be done remotely. Right. And and those people, I mean, which is frankly, people like me, fell into a little bit of a, a I think, a a rabbit hole of not recognizing how unusual their situation was. And then a discourse started to develop as if spread of COVID was happening either because of like hardcore, super ideological Trumpers who just like absolutely refused to take any kind of precaution or because of small breakdowns in the caution of the most cautious people. Like maybe you talk to a friend outdoors with your masks on, but someone slipped inside the six foot barrier, right? Like trying to like move on the margin of the the very most cautious people when, you know, realistically, the vast majority of people don't have remote jobs, right? And we're just out there day in, day out, often indoors, which as Derek says, is where the spread occurs. Um, Masks, as I understand it, are helpful, but they're not infallible. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's we don't have super advanced contact tracing of all the outbreak of of the disease. But I mean, my impression is that the vast majority of spread occurred like outside the parameters of this whole discourse, right? That it's people, um, probably people who were not as cautious as the most cautious people, but not super ideologues um, who didn't have the option, though, of being inside all the time. You know, if you work at the TSA, like they didn't close the airports. The rules are you have to wear a mask at the airport, but they were also selling food. I mean, I I traveled once uh, during the, the, the pandemic, you know, on a plane, and I read a lot of stuff about, you know, transmission on airplanes and uh, the filtration. And I, I came around to the view that it was OK. You know, I was going to wear my mask. The air is well filtered. I didn't think a lot about like, OK, they tell everybody eight times in the announcement that you have to wear your mask and then they pass out pretzels. Um, you know, and in the airports, too, it's like the concessionaires, they would lose too much money if they couldn't sell food and drink to people. Uh, but then I'm just kind of sitting there being like, well, you know, I, I hope for the best. Um, and, it, and it worked out fine. But, you know, lots of people, it, it just if that's your job, you were exposed to those moderately hazardous conditions day in, day out, every day for over a year. And it just like had nothing to do with, you know, the whole 
dialogue about sort of like edge case safety that I think our readers were really obsessed with because they, like us, were kind of like at home and had a lot of time to click on things and and sort of be nervous. And, and I feel like this kind of like fracturing in American society is like going to take some time to put back together. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And interestingly, one of the ways that I intersected with this argument is I wrote this article about uh, people who were refusing to take the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I frankly just didn't understand this ideology. Given everything I was reading, it was like, why wouldn't you wave this magic wand over yourself that is being offered for free that allows you to resume your normal life? And I posted on Twitter, I said, if anyone wants to talk to me about this, I, I don't want to write a takedown. I want to write, you know, an ethnography. I want to just understand this point of view. And this guy reached out to me from Colorado and he said, I am a driver, I'm a truck driver. And from the beginning, my wife works in the hospital. I work as a truck driver. I, I, I never stopped working. I knew I was going to get this. I had no choice, I think, but to get COVID. And I had no choice but to go back to work. Um, I was never working in uh, you know, the white collar sweatpants. I was always working in uh, the hard pants. And so now that I think I've gotten it, and I think that my wife has gotten, I think I might have passed it on to my kids, We've already been living a normal life for 15 months. Why are we going to accept a pharmaceutical intervention to give us permission to continue to do the activities we're already doing? And what that made me think about is the fact that my attitude toward the vaccine is very much downstream of my attitude toward the pandemic. I feel like I've sacri- I have I was supposed to get married last year and have a wedding last year. I canceled that. I was supposed to have a honeymoon last year. I canceled that too. Um, I stayed right here where I'm talking to you now at my kitchen table for basically 80% of my waking hours or certainly 90% of my working hours. Um, and so I want to get the hell out of this. I hate this. I want to get married. I want to go on, I want to go to my honeymoon. And so when the vaccine comes around, I'm like, yeah, fuck yes. I like, give me that vaccine. Like jab me three times if you have to. <laughs> But from his perspective, his attitude toward the vaccine flows downstream from his own experience in the pandemic. It's been an, essentially a normal world for him in the last year. They've traveled. They accepted this as a risk that they said was going to be acceptable. And so they are like, I don't think I want to take a risk on a, on a pharmaceutical experiment as they see it because they accentuate the risks of a, pharma, of a Pfizer shot rather than the benefits as I would. And look, I disagree with his analysis. I disagree with his cost-benefit analysis. But it concretized the fact that my experience in this pandemic is extremely weird. I had an unbelievable stable job in this pandemic, which was just writing about this pandemic, just sitting here at this table from which I'm speaking to you in the sweatpants that I am wearing. Yes, even on my birthday, uh, not nice sweatpants. This is, a, this is an incredibly bizarre, idiosyncratic working experience. And I don't want to sort of inflict uh, the judgments that are specific to my life on other people too dramatically. Uh, it's not to say that I think the you know the vaccine hesitant or the vaccine resistant are like correct in some empirical way, but that I I, I do come to understand that like this pandemic to sort of end uh, where Matt ended has created such a schism in people's lives that for the work for the white collar class that work in internet connected jobs. It has essentially allowed them to live a normalish life from their living rooms, 
and there are tens of millions of people that have had a completely different experience. And we, the media, are like sometimes inflicting our lived experiences, they say, on, on those sort of, um, on, on, on the blue collar workforce or the in-person workforce that had no option to do that, which we've done very easily. A great sign of that. There was, there was a CNN piece that was about like your potential anxiety making eye contact with people again. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was funny. I mean, you know, like a lot of, uh, you don't, you don't have my, my blog career without being a bit of a socially awkward weirdo. So I, it did speak to me a little bit, but I was thinking, it was like, you know, like the vast majority of people have have continued to see their coworkers in person. And if, if nothing else, right, even masked up, like have been in fact been making eye contact uh, this whole time and, and do not need to relearn it. Yeah, I would add on to that, that there's even, I mean, I feel like there are so many gradations of pandemic experience and the people who lived in not just white collar jobs, but like media and liberal politics jobs in New York and DC are on the absolute extreme end of that spectrum. And there are a lot of people even in our position between us who saw grandparents who were caring for their kids, who gathered in small groups with friends, and sometimes it was outdoors and sometimes it was indoors. And, you know, as we were saying, that was a lot of the spread. But um, I have been surprised on social media by talking to people I know. And that's even within like a pretty rarefied bubble of college graduates working some kind of white collar job. The people I know in media and the people I know in the big northeastern cities um, and east coast cities and uh, California have had a very dramatically different experience, even from people in Texas or in Kansas um, or in Illinois, in terms of the level of precautions they take, which, you know, to a degree, like, I don't know, everybody's experience is different all the time. And that's the way things are. But it does feel like there has been this solidified narrative of what the pandemic is that applies to like, Maybe ten percent of people. Yes. Uh, okay. Let's let's take a break, and, and then I want to pivot back to to policy. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. So, you know, I'm a like I'm a policy 
writer. Like that's that's what I do. That's the coverage L- Libby runs. Um, Derek is a you're a little more a little more flexible, I think, in your 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 scope of things. But so for me, it was like very natural, right? I mean, I'm not like a pandemic guy. I'm not an infectious diseases guy, but obviously I covered this story a lot. But to me, it was just so natural to cover it through a lens of policy, right? Like what policies are we putting in place? And, you know, I thought it was weird. I mean, Libby, you were talking about the Northeastern cities, but it was the the, the West Coast, I think, has been even more severe on a, on a policy level, at least. I was like shocked to hear um, how much outdoor stuff was banned in California, where the only two things I've ever heard a person in California tell me are the weather's really nice and no, you can't do that outside. And <laughs> and, you know, it's very, it was weird to me, right? Uh, but then sort of looking at it, you know, from the perspective of of last winter and, and this spring, it's like hard to see that the divergent policies led to really different outcomes, right? You know, you look at California and then you look at an Arizona and the health outcomes you can, if you squint at it right, particularly if you look at Washington, Oregon, Maine, I think you can see the liberal states making a difference. But it's not a huge difference, right? And it's not just that the pandemic hit New York first. It looks to me now, and, and Derek, I, I saw you tweeting a, a paper about this with, with Texas. It, it just looks to me like policy did not actually make that big of a difference on what, what happened. And I I wonder what to make of that. Yeah. So let me talk a little bit about this Texas paper. Um, And I I agree that one of the potential conclusions is that policy doesn't make a a huge difference. Um, But that's not the only possible interpretation. Mm -hmm. So the paper. Uh, Several weeks ago, Governor Abbott of Texas um, made Texas the first state to abolish its mask mandate and lift capacity restraints for all of its businesses. And this new paper asked, you know, what changed? And the answer seems to be nothing. There was no effect on COVID cases. There was no effect on employment. There was no effect on mobility, uh, sort of any um, attempt to measure how much people were moving from their houses didn't seem to change that. There was no effect, measurable effect on retail foot traffic. Um, And this no effect was similarly non-affecting in both liberal and conservative areas. So what does this mean? Definitely one interpretation is exactly what Matt said. Uh, policy is just pissing into the wind here. Um, the, the, the pandemic is such a strong variable. The disease is just spreading as it will. And people have made up their minds already in month 14, whatever, uh, of the pandemic in terms of what they want to do, that whatever the governor says isn't going to change their minds. So that's that's interpretation number one, is that sort of individual behavior is more important than state mandates. Uh, the pro-maskers were going to keep wearing their masks, and the anti-maskers had already ditched their mask. Another interpretation is that uh, the intersection between the virus and sort of uh, weather is so important in Southern states uh, in the early spring that it made it less consequential to abolish mask mandates, uh, that in hot, humid weather, uh, coronavirus doesn't spread very effectively. And so maybe that was the more important variable here. Um, third, uh, a third explanation is that uh, because Texas was already being vaccinated and it already had a certain seroprevalence, which means the share of people that got sick from COVID and have antibodies against it, that the sort of level of antibodies in the population were overwhelming the impact of any mask mandate, yay or nay. What I'm interested in is like sort of the social influence aspect of this. Like, how do we learn, we three people podcasting in Washington, D.C., um, or we conservatives in America, 
how do we learn what to do? So on the one hand, like it seems to me that conservatives are taking their message from maybe Fox News, maybe from other conservative websites, maybe from the White House during the Trump administration, or maybe they're just taking a negative message from anything that liberals say. Like maybe literally whatever Fauci or the CDC or Biden seem to say, conservatives are just saying, I'm going to do the opposite. But I'm also interested in like how there's a huge difference between Texas lifting its mask mandate and nothing happening at all versus the CDC making that announcement last week. The vaccinated individuals are basically good to go inside and outside, you know, masks be gone. A lot changed. Anecdotally in DC, masks came off. Non-anecdotally, uh, Cuomo now says that New York's gonna lift their mask requirements. Non-anecdotally, a lot of grocers, including Trader Joe's, say that they're gonna lift their mask requirements. New Jersey's Governor Murphy says that the public uh, school system is gonna be, um, is, is now certainly not going to be remote in September. So a lot of people in sort of my social circle we're taking their cues rather directly, it seems to me, from the CDC, waiting for permission for Fauci or the CDC or the New York Times to say, you can do it, you can take off your mask and, and, and waiting for that green light. Whereas conservatives were clearly taking their cues from somewhere else. And that would be an explanation that also frankly explains the Texas phenomenon. If liberals were like, I don't care what the hell Governor Abbott tells me to do, I'm waiting for, for Fauci, then Abbott's uh, opinion doesn't matter. Meanwhile, conservatives had already taken off their mask. Maybe Abbott was taking his cues from them and saying, well, pff, all my co-partisans are going unmasked. Why, why am I enforcing a mask mandate? So I'm really interested in, again, to my first point, in the breakdown of clear administration to public communication. How do we learn what the hell to do during a pandemic? And I think these two data points, the te Texas lifting of the mask mandate and the CDC announcement or two are really interesting data points to this measure. Yeah, I think if we had, were having this conversation a week ago, I think I would be taking a different position here right now and saying that I'm, I, I kind of agree that I don't know the policy mattered at all, ultimately, in terms of individual behavior, in terms of the, de the decisions that companies made. I mean, there is nothing more depressing than to have been writing about what's safe and isn't safe for an entire year and your own company to, you know, announce plans that seem somewhat out of step uh, with with the science, which I think, Derek, you wrote about this experience as well with the desk cleaning. Um, and I, But the, the reaction to the CDC announcement in places that had been cautious and among entities that had been cautious has really made me rethink that. Um, and people clearly were waiting for a true official permission. And I guess the counterfactual is we're also almost exactly a month out, five weeks out, like today, from the highest vaccination day in the US. And so maybe there were a lot of people who were going to hit their two weeks post second shot and just do what they want anyway. But that's not super convincing to me. I mean, clearly public messaging has had some kind of effect here. But what's interesting is that the message is, is, is odd, right? I mean, because... The CDC, when, when they first made their statement, I thought, right, this is correct. This is good. This is 100% my understanding of the science, of the literature, etc. There is no need for a person who is fully vaccinated to be wearing a mask, whether indoors or outdoors. That's like a, a science statement, right? Then there's a policy question, right. which is like in a world where some people, but like not anti-vaxxers, like there just are people who got their second shot yesterday, right? 
and they might there be people the who got their first shot yesterday. I mean, right, there, there's right, a lot right, of people right, still right, getting so, vaccinated. Right. So, I mean, there are a lot of people who are like conscientious rule followers who are taking the vaccines, who nonetheless are not yet fully vaccinated. And then there are also a lot of people who are not conscientious, not rule followers, who are refusing to get the vaccine, who never liked wearing a mask, but who, if the manager at Trader Joe's makes them wear a mask, would wear a mask, right? And so then there's just a a pragmatic question, which is like, since grocery store employees don't have x-ray vision, should we just make everyone wear a mask inside to protect the not yet fully vaccinated people from the liars out there? I do not agree with the people who say the CDC should have pretended that vaccinated people need to wear masks in order to address this pragmatic concern. But like if Mayor Bowser asks me what she should do, like I would say, you should say, because we don't know who's vaccinated and who isn't, we're going to keep an indoor mask order on until we reach X threshold, at which point I'm going to say, fair enough, right? Because that's policy. And like, to me, there's like science, and then there's policy. And science should be done by people like the CDC. And they should be super duper sciencey about it and like totally ignore real world consequences. And then politicians should take responsibility for their own actions, right? And not be like, I'm gonna listen to the science, quote unquote. I mean, of course, they should listen to what scientists have to say. But they should be like, look, like, We can't keep a mask order on forever, but we also can't just assume everybody will be honest. So here's what I, the relevant authority, have come up with, right? Because I need to see the whole picture, everybody's interests, the economy, democratic legitimacy. And part of what's happened is like, I think like a breakdown of, of that, Right. Like among the blue state officials where they want to make it be like the CDC somehow made their choice for them in a way that doesn't really make sense. I mean, I, I, I wrote a bunch of pieces about this, but like the CDC has all kinds of guidelines about stuff. Right. Like they say you shouldn't serve uh, rare steak. Um, or medium rare. Yeah, right. <laughs> they recommend 145. Medium rare is 125. Yeah. Right. So like that's appalling. Um, if you tried to ban a medium rare steak, I think people would throw a fit and like rightly so, but they're not incorrect, right? Like the the bacteria killing by heat science that they are citing there is right. It's just like normal public officials say people can make that choice. And the reason, of course, it's not infectious, right? So it's like, if I do get salmonella from eating runny eggs somewhere, it's not like a crisis for society. So it's just, it's just up to me. Um, but like that, that's what politics is, is for. Uh, but now I do see like a lot of backlash where people are saying, no, the CDC should have anticipated the like social reaction function to their statements. And, and said different things. And I just, I have a hard time with that. Like, I don't, I don't understand how the CDC would have the appropriate competence to issue guidance that like tries to guess what's the governor of New Jersey going to say in response to your guidance. Well, I mean, we saw what happened last year when the CDC tried to like attune its advice to do sort of social engineering with the, the round one of the CDC mass crisis. And I think we all agree that was bad as the CDC <sighs> should not, you know, 
get over its skis on the science because it's concerned about how people are going to react. Um, so it does feel a little bit like they can't win on this one. Like they should have said last year that masks were effective and let people, or we think we have no reason to believe masks aren't effective or whatever the exact phrasing was at the time that would have been accurate um, and let people work it out on their own. And in the same way, I mean, I'm with you on this, Matt. I, I think from, I've gone from totally like, yes, this is great to, wow, this this feels like a real fast throwing up into the doors, given that we're at like 40 something percent of Americans with even one shot right now. And um, they've just been so entangled together. It's it's become difficult to to dislodge. The CDC is the only authority on this. Yeah, I think what I would say, I I, I might slightly disagree on emphasis. We might agree on all the facts. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, of course, true that the CDC should care first and foremost about clearly communicating the science and that a, a policy guidance that incorporates like social psychology and sociology is like maybe adjacent to the CDC's job, but clearly not like, you know, the main course of, of their role in American society. I think, though, it's very fair to say that the CDC, rather than being timely and clear in their guidance on masks, has instead been slow and confusing. Um, and this is not just my opinion. Like we have reports that still State officials had no idea this was coming. We have reports that businesses were caught off guard. We have reports that the White House was surprised by both the timing and the substance of this advice, even though the underlying science didn't change that much. And my feeling here is like the CDC is notionally in the business of offering public health guidance. And when governments across the country are shocked by your announcement, when the underlying science hasn't changed that much, that is proof that you have not guided them particularly effectively. And to me, this is a sign that the CDC, or it's more evidence the CDC, has just been slow and confusing on every step. And we've seen this before. It it was slow on surface transmission, months late, six to nine months late on the idea that so-called fomite or surface transmission of the coronavirus is largely mythical. They were slow on indoor versus outdoor. They were months late on this idea that the virus clearly was spreading far, far more, 20 times more, 100 times more inside rather than outside. And here we see that they've been that their slowness and their confusion on the issue of the vaccines and transmission among vaccinated individuals, that that confusion has steamrolled otherwise good policy. So for example, North Carolina had a policy that was tied to thresholds where they said mask mandates are going to be lifted when two thirds of adults have had at least one dose. But then that's a great policy, I think. I think, I think matching the lifting of these mandates to the, uh, to sort of thresholds of, of dosage is, is a fantastic way to do it. But after the CDC came out with this most recent announcement, that benchmark is gone and all their mandates have been lifted. The CDC instead, I think, should have been the business of doing something more like North Carolina. They should have said from the beginning, this is an indoor aerosol virus. The vaccines work and more vaccines per area are better. And we project or we anticipate that as the U.S. passes certain thresholds and as individual states pass certain thresholds at different moments, we will have different advice or different guidance for those states. At 50%, we expect we can say this and this. At 60% of vaccinations, we expect that, you know, the, the indoor mask mandates can be lifted and, you know, whatever, restaurants and this. But rather than give that kind of guidance, rather than anticipate that their job in the future will, of course, be to give a new reading on the scientific consensus as they see it, they seem to turn on a dime that to me indicated yet again that they've been really, really bad um, at being timely and clear uh, about what Americans should do, how they should behave, and how state governments should create rules that anticipate their behavior. 
No, I, I agree with that. I, I wanted to loop back to to my um, sort of newfound policy skepticism, though, which is the, going back to sort of like before the the specifics of, of this mask thing. There was an incredible amount of discussion about like restaurant rules, right? Like that was just been a huge topic of coverage. It's something I've written about a lot. I mean, I'm I'm trying to be self-critical rather than critical of, of others here um, because restaurants were such a pain point because it's so damaging economically to keep them closed, but it's so obvious, right? According to the best understanding of science that like the restaurant situation is very dangerous. Like wiping down the tables 11 times doesn't help. You can't wear a mask while you're eating, even making sure the tables are spaced. Like, it doesn't do a great job if people are in and out of there all day, right? Restaurants are very dangerous. It's something I emphasized a lot. I wish, I mean, I like to be vindicated, right? And so I wish there was some great study linking restaurant closure policy to COVID spread. And they're just like, there really isn't, right? And I've come around to the view that it's like two things, right? One is, the vast majority of people I know did not dine indoors, even though it's been allowed in Washington, in, in D.C. for months and months and months, right? Like, cautious people were not eating indoors, even when it was allowed. But then even where it's banned, like in California, or even I, I saw people throwing Halloween parties, right? Like, I took my kid out trick-or-treating on Halloween because I thought that is a safe outdoor activity. So we were walking around the neighborhood that evening, and then we're like – there were party. We were on the early side, but you could see parties getting started. You could see young people with six packs of beer clearly heading someplace. And no state, right? Some states like California were incredibly strict about restaurants, but absolutely no state was like kicking down doors and busting up house parties. And so if you were inclined to say, you didn't really think that indoor eating and drinking and socializing was too risky. Nobody was actually stopping you, right? And we wrote a million articles about restaurant regulations. And I don't think anybody called for the government to bust up house parties because, you know, the, I mean, I think for a pretty good reason people didn't call for that. But there was this like double movement in progressive media that was like simultaneously in favor of much more stringent COVID regulation, but also more attuned than ever to like the dangers of overly aggressive policing. But like you can't separate those ideas, right? Like if you were going to have like a, a lockdown quote unquote, like that's an authoritarian, aggressive policing of people's behavior. And actually nobody was doing that despite like all these paper regulations. Yeah, I'm glad we got around to this because this is I'm not sure we had a failure of policy so much as a failure of enforcement. And I think we had an inevitable failure of enforcement kind of because of some of these civil trust fracturing of society things we've been talking about. Like when I think about 2020. It almost feels like the two, you know, huge issues of the pandemic and policing came together in this way of like, there isn't a, an authority that people would trust to enforce those rules and to enforce them equally. And I'm not, I'm certainly not saying that, that they're wrong. I don't, I don't either. You know, I, I, I have a hard time believing that an upper middle class gathering of 10 people at a dinner party would be hassled, um, you know, the, the way that it might in, in a different area. Um, but it also is really what hamstrung like every stage 
of our response. It's why we haven't, we weren't able to do contact tracing because there was no way to give it any teeth. As I know you guys talked about it on a previous episode. It's why vaccine passports are dead in the water because it's like, oh, okay, is somebody making, you know, eight, 10, $15 an hour at a grocery store going to be the person who like asks for your vaccination status? That's a hell of a lot to put on them. Um, it feels like we were just doomed from the beginning on that. And we were doomed from the beginning because of things of the society that had really nothing to do with the pandemic in the first place. Yeah, I'm not sure I have that much more to add. I have no idea what kind of government body would be knocking on people's doors if they think that a little bit too much noise is being made behind the door and saying, just out of curiosity, it sounds like there are some um, out of family or out of household members. Uh, that, that, that party sounds too loud for it to only be the roommates who already live in the house. You know, like, I, how, how would you even begin to know which parties, which, which uh, doors to knock on? I, I think there's no way that was ever going to happen. And I think that unfortunately, you're right, that totally complicates efforts to determine exactly what kind of policies, state policies were successful, because I believe, and I, I don't have evidence in front of me r- right now uh, to prove it, that a lot of the community spread happened from friends and extended family, essentially non-household members mixing inside in places that weren't necessarily places of business, right? Just like extended family members coming over to the house to celebrate on a Sunday and one of them was sick and suddenly everyone gets sick because the windows weren't open or you were just, you know, having, uh, you know, dinner in a, in a small apartment. I think, I think that that was the, the cause of, of a lot of spread on, on the restaurant issue. Um, I am really hopeful that we get some research that here, and I'm willing to say that I was r- wrong about the danger of restaurants um, as a uh, uh, as a place for super sp- not super spreading events, but for um, easy spreading um, of of COVID. I think one of the dan- one of the difficulties of these restaurant studies um, is let's think about a place like Florida. So Florida at the state level has had famously accommodating policies that basically say, you know, you do you, very laissez-faire on masks um, and very laissez-faire on restaurants too. But both anecdotally and from a little bit of harder evidence that I've seen, seniors in Florida seem to have taken the disease pretty seriously. And um, sources that I have or, or people that I've spoken to who live in senior communities in Florida say it was masks everywhere. No one was going to eat inside in restaurants. And so all of these parties that you see of, you know, like outside bars and people spilling onto beaches, these were 20 and 30 somethings who, if they got the disease, might have gotten sick and gone to the hospital, but were very unlikely to die. And so it wouldn't be reflected in the final COVID death statistics. And so this state policy of Governor DeSantis is not reflected in the senior behavior of Floridians. And that's what makes, I think, a restaurant, any, any research into state by state policies so difficult to ultimately, you know, compare in an apples to apples way, because we we really want to compare is how do state policies affect individuals behavior in a way that we can compare on a one to one basis. And I think that's just going to be tough, because there were so many other channels of influence, not just what Governor Abbott says, or Governor DeSantis says, but how individuals felt about the risk behavior based on the fact that they were over 65, how individuals felt based on what cable news they watched, whether it was Fox or MSNBC or CNN, whether they were devoted readers of the New York Times or the Drudge Report or, you know, Ben Shapiro or something else, the, the weeds. And so I think that, that it's, that's, that's the hard thing to, to disentangle, I think. And, and that goes to Matt's point that policy matters, sure, but it was one of many, many streams of influence uh, that was nudging people's behavior. Well, and, you know, it was once, I, I mean, it's, it's hard to draw super strong conclusions from, from the time series data, right? But it's, if you look at, you know, 
cases, deaths, et cetera, right? It's clear we had a first burst concentrated in New York City and, and a few other places, and, and we got it under control, right? I mean, tragically slow, a lot of people lost their lives, but the policy response to that worked. And then there was kind of the, the reopening surge um, over the summer, right, when a lot of more red-leaning states, uh, you know, sort of, sort of took the pedals off and, and people got sick, some people died. It, it wasn't that big, but you can see a divergence between the U.S. and Europe. Uh, but the, a huge share of the cases and the death toll came over the winter, you know, driven by some mixture of seasonality and like the holidays, right? I mean, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas are the classic, you know, people from across households gather inside um, to, to go do things. And, and it seems like there was a big, big impact there, which was not significantly impacted. I don't want to say it wasn't impacted by policy, but it wasn't impacted by the regulations, right? Like nobody banned Christmas, right? What happened was, was lots of people eschewed Christmas voluntarily because that was their understanding of, you know, medical science and other people didn't do that, right? And that's what made the the margin. And, you know, the question then becomes, right, I mean, if this if this happens again, right, like, because I feel like a lot of liberals have taken away from this the lesson that everybody likes to take away from everything, which is like, I was right all along. And if only we could make uh, Republicans not exist, we wouldn't have all these problems. But the a more plausible lesson seems to me to be that like focusing on the quality, the timeliness, and the clarity of the advice giving part of the federal government like would have accomplished a lot more, right? That if people really believed, okay, this is credible medical science about indoor gatherings, right? And that like we are not shaming you for going on the beach. Like we are really saying this, like this one thing, we are not here to try to close down your businesses. Like, you know, but we are trying to tell you that this is dangerous. If you could have convinced people like in their hearts, that would have made a big difference. But if you could have imposed California level stringency across all 50 states, I don't know that that would have made much of a difference at all. Right. Like it, it doesn't it doesn't seem to have made that big of a difference in California because some people in California, you know, didn't believe or weren't able to avoid their workplaces or other things like that. I mean, I think there's even one step beyond that, which is to a degree, this entire conversation is rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic once the virus is loose. I mean, we, we haven't sure. talked a lot about international comparisons in this conversation, but the main thing I've taken away, I mean, Germany saw a Christmas surge, the UK saw a Christmas surge, like even, even countries that had more effective enforcement and more stringent lockdowns saw that. The, the lesson I've really taken away is if you're going to do that crackdown, you've got to do it fast before we did, because once it's loose, like people can't live like that for 15 months. You know, very, I managed, I, I managed to, and I still, I had one COVID scare. Almost everybody I know had one. It's just, it's impossible to seal yourself off from the world to that degree. And if that's what we're counting on, we are going to fail. Yeah. I just think it's worth considering the possibility that overly strict anti-COVID rules might backfire in some ways. So for example, Julia Marcus, epidemiologist, made this great point to me um, where she, when we were talking about the outdoor mask mandates. She said, she said two things. One, she said, these outdoor mask mandates uh, tend to be policies made by people who have yards. 
So it's very easy to have a yard and say, oh, whenever you're outside, you have to have a mask on, except for me when I'm in my yard. So you're essentially saying that for everyone who doesn't have yards, they can't, they aren't allowed to have an outdoor experience in which they're not fully masked. Now, lots of people don't like masks. They don't like the way they feel. They don't like the way they look on other people. They're just anti mask in general for a variety of cultural and ergonomic and uh, uh, other emotional experiences. So what happens? Well, if you live in an apartment and you have no yard and you're required to wear a mask at all times outside, then you never get to be maskless outside. So where do you want to gather maskless? Inside. Right. So if you want to hang out with your friends, what do you do? You invite them over to your house and you say, let's be kind of careful or not. Let's be kind of careful. I just miss the hell out of you. Let's have a beer together. So now you're mixing households inside because of a mask mandate outside, because of overly strict measures for you know regulating the outdoors. So this is a way, I think, a possibility of how overly regulating and, 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 and overly strict policies can actually backlash and create more indoor household mixing in a way that you uh, want to avoid above all. So this is why going back again to like the six word definition, like if you just stress from the beginning that this is an indoor aerosol virus, here's what the risk is, here's how it spreads. That's the, that's the only guidance you give people, indoor aerosol, basically an indoor talking disease. You've now told people how it spreads and you say, knowing that, do what you can to avoid that risk. We encourage you to go outside. We encourage you when you do socialize to be in as alfresco an environment as possible um, while recognizing that for a lot of people, that's going to be very difficult. I, I just feel like a, a message that that is that is that clear, but also contains within it a little bit of nuance, allows people to essentially go about their decisions and go about their lives, sort of understanding the basic mechanisms of how this spreads and keeping in mind those mechanisms when they are really interested in gathering inside. I think that's I think that's wise and uh, probably a, a good place to to take a break and talk about a white paper. Okay, so what we've got today is the long term effects of universal preschool in Boston by Guthrie Greylobe, Parag Pathak, and Christopher Walters. Um, so they are looking at uh, sort of a, a universal preschool rollout in the city of Boston. Um, it, it is a good study because. Um, Liberals uh, for years have been sort of talking about universal preschool, uh, usually with reference to studies that were done like in the 70s about small-scale programs. And those studies are like incredibly bullish. They're like, preschool is amazing. But I think any halfway skeptical person could also be like, well, what does this actually tell us about anything? Um, so this is real. This is at scale. It's recent. Um, and they show that it boosts college enrollment, SAT test taking, high school graduation, uh, decreases juvenile and incarceration, but has no detectable impact on state achievement test scores uh, and bigger impacts for boys than for girls. Uh, but so basically, it seems to have had uh, meaningful improvement in sort of behavioral issues um, and probably a bigger impact on boys than on girls because that's where you, you see more of those kind of problems. Um, so I guess my bottom line, I don't know, Libby, you, you, you know, you know, education, but this seems like less bullish on preschool than the old studies, but also a lot more solid and actually persuasive. Yeah, I, I think I have a slightly different read. I actually read this as incredibly positive because it feels like the debate has either been between, you know, we studied 25 people in 1963 and it, it solved every problem in their life, which is a little <laughs> flippant, but, you know, not, not that far off or like it does nothing. And a large scale recent study that 
actually finds like pretty robust effects on quite a few different measures, even if state achievement tests are not one of them, is is actually like to me, I'm not necessarily surprised, but it's certainly not necessarily what I, what I would have predicted. And I think it's pretty positive overall. Yeah, my read here. So there was a period maybe five years ago where I got really, really deep into pre-K policy and had to dig up those Evernotes pages in order to uh, refresh <laughs> my my memory of this issue for for this week's episode. I remember when when I was deep into the James Heckman studies and the Perry Preschool Program studies, uh, the North Carolina pre- Preschool studies. I came away from those studies with sort of two big conclusions. And Libby, maybe tell me if you if these are if these conclusions don't jive, or Matt, if your these conclusions don't jive with with your understanding of the research. Number one is that good pre K is good, and bad pre K exists and is not good. Like it is possible to have a bad school, just like it is possible to have a bad restaurant or it is possible to have a bad therapist. Like services can exist along a spectrum of goodness and uh, pre-K is one of those services. Um, And I remember, I believe a few years ago, maybe 2014, 15, uh, Quebec had this research that seemed to indicate that their preschool program was not very successful. And it's possible that the preschool program wasn't very successful because it was kind of shoddy. Maybe it was a little bit rushed. Maybe the teachers weren't particularly well-trained and and that's why the kids didn't come away with particularly uh, positive measurable benefits. So my first first big picture conclusion was good pre-K, good, bad pre-K, bad. The second was that for a variety of reasons, um, the non-cognitive benefits, the behavioral impacts of pre-K seem to be more measurably beneficial than the cognitive stuff. That a lot of this research seems to indicate that like the long-term increases in employment or the long-term decreases in interactions with the criminal justice system seem to be clearer outcomes, clearer positive outcomes from these uh, universal pre-K programs than things like, oh, their SAT jumped by 100 points. Oh, they ended up making you know an average of $70,000 more per year because of this preschool program. Um, it, does that jive with your research that, that A, there's a, there's a spectrum of goodness um, in, in this space, and B, that in a lot of these um, studies, um, there's this emphasis that the non-cognitive stuff seems to be the more measurably beneficial aspect than the, than the cognitive stuff? I think that's right. Um, and I, I think the quality thing is, is especially important because as we've seen various universal pre-K and childcare proposals roll out, there's always seemed to have been this like two legs to it of not only do we have to do this at scale, but we have to do it at, at, at high quality, which often translates into um, just a more credentialed workforce. Um, one thing I would be interested in and that I didn't feel like I got a great picture of one way or another is how the Boston pre-K system like stacks up absent quality of outcomes, if that makes sense. Like we can look at this and say, oh, they found some, they found some effects. It must be good. But I am curious how the inputs compare to what we've typically been talking about when we talk about a quality program um, on the, on the childcare and pre-K level. I mean, you know, so they're looking here, right, at, at preschools that were part of Boston public schools, right? Um, and so I, I had uh, Dana Goldstein on uh, Friday's episode, and she was talking about the, the universal preschool rollout in New York. You know, when she said that they've seen there, a, to make it universal, essentially, they put preschool into New York public schools, but they couldn't like magically conjure up extra school buildings. Um, so to achieve universality, a lot of like other providers also count 
as part of the universal preschool. And they don't have the kind of long-term data because it's a new program. But her at least short-term impression was that you see a divergence um, in the quality of, of what's being provided there. Um, you know, uh, we're all in D.C. where it's closer to the Boston model, uh, where the rollout has mostly been inside the public school system. But with the nuance that charter schools are a really large share of D.C. public education. So there's all kinds of pre-K charter schools. Schools, um, which I think it's hard to evaluate a preschool in the like traditional charter evaluation framework because uh, you're not giving standardized tests to three year olds. Um, so, like, I don't know exactly how the public charter board like assesses whether the charter preschools um, are good or not. You know, an advantage, my son's uh, in kindergarten now, but he did two years of DCPS pre-K. One nice thing about that, I mean, it's not just to make like broad assertions about quality, but is alignment, right? Like there's one principle. And so he has like a theory of what he wants to see happen as the kids move through, right? And so um, your preschool can prepare the kids for kindergarten much more effectively if like the kindergarten is actually in the same building and they can have alignment across the, the curricula. And I think particularly when you see that the benefits are primarily non-cognitive, I, I mean, that makes it seem like it might not even necessarily matter exactly what curriculum choices you're making, but it's still beneficial to like have some kind of organization, right? Because you're like just getting kids into the idea of doing school earlier, right? And like listening and, and following the rules and like the discipline uh, in, in my son's school is incredible. You know, like I, my mind is blown by like how good the teachers are at like getting these three-year-olds to like listen and pay attention. And then the four-year-olds do it too and the five and six, right? And they've like really laid the groundwork for like being a student in this incredibly effective way. And I don't know how you could do that in like a free-floating, you know, program for three and four-year-olds. We have no idea where the kids are going or what the expectations are going to be. Yeah. I'd be really curious why you guys think it seems to have this outcome of improving non-cognitive and not cognitive. Like it seems to me, Matt mentioned something about rule following and you look at the, you know, the, the results of this Boston paper, you know, it, um, you know, boosts college attendance, high school graduation, SAT test taking, but not state achievement test scores and reduces uh, disciplinary uh, juvenile incarceration. It's almost as if the pre-K program has a lasting effect on rule following, largely broadly defined, but less of a measurable effect on like achievement boosting in some uh, quantifiable way. Maybe that's an unfair characterization, but Libby, go ahead. That actually tees off what I was going to say pretty well. I wouldn't characterize it as rule following. To me, it looks like attachment to school. Like it almost looks like this program gets people Attach, more attached to the education system. Um, taking the SAT, this is, this is me as a higher ed reporter talking. That's actually a huge deal. Whether or not students take the SAT can be predictive of where they end up in college, whether they go to college at all. Um, getting just more students to take those tests is like a legitimate policy goal in a lot of states. So it's really interesting to see that effect like 12 or 14 years later. And if I were to just like look at this and randomly speculate on a theory that like unites all of these effects, it is just like, you're in school more, like you're more likely, you know, you're more likely to, um, maybe, I don't know if it's the, to think of yourself as a student, maybe it is the alignment that Matt was talking about. Um, 
but it, it looks like there is like an attachment to the school system to some degree itself. And I wonder if that comes from the fact that this is a program run through the public schools. That, Like I said, like there's no evidence of that. But if I were to just like look at these data points and try to draw some weird shape that connects them, that's the thing that sort of pops into my mind here. I feel like it's a little bit of an uncomfortable issue to like delve deeper and deeper into because it's like, you know, people, I mean, not all people, but there's a set of people who are sort of predisposed to like want to believe that preschool is good. So they look at these studies and like, oh, like we've got good benefits. Like that's good. Joe Biden is good. Schools are good. Uh, But then like, well, what are the benefits? Right. And what you would want to say is like, well, this like made everybody incredibly smart and we like overcome all the troubles of coming from a disadvantaged background and like, this is going to fix everything and we'll be an amazing society. Uh, but the benefits actually are like you become more disciplined, right? <laughs> Which is not, it's not that it's not a real benefit, right? Like this is like, it actually makes a big difference uh, to, to life outcomes, right? Like you have fewer kids ending up in jail, uh, which is, you know, important. And like, I think good, and everybody can agree that that it's for the best. But I have a hard time sort of imagining, like a Democratic politician on the stump talking about how preschool is going to like, I don't know, it's going to like brainwash these kids to be, uh, I don't know what, just like more perfect authoritarian citizens um, who who don't break the rules and wind up not getting arrested. It's like a bit of a it's a bit of a curious sell, I think, compared to where people are. And I would like to know it's like exactly what is it that's that's happening, right? Like, why are you taking the SATs um, but not doing better in school? Because the most intuitive explanation would be like, okay, you learn your reading faster, so you feel more confident with schoolwork, so you're not as like scared off. By the idea of taking SATs, but that's not what's happening. So, like, what could be? I think it might be tied to um, high school completion, which is like a that's a significant finding. Like, of, of the things mm-hmm. that are the most like academically positive, like finishing high school is pretty good. And it may just be that I'm not from the Northeast. I'm from a place where the SAT is less common. The SAT is way more common in Boston. It may just like be you're physically around in the school system long enough to take it. And so you take it. Um, I would love to see this run again later on with earnings data, because if what you're looking at is increased, you know, conscientiousness or rule following or authoritarian behavior, or however we're characterizing it, like, I think the later life outcomes for a study like this could be really interesting. But yeah, it does. It certainly doesn't show that, oh, they scored like 15 points higher on the state achievement tests in math that, you know, that that, that would make the clear cut case for it uh, right out of the gate. Yeah. I just think I, I don't have that much more to add. I, I actually just think it's a really fascinating and somewhat mysterious finding that the rather reproducible benefit to discipline isn't cashing out in a reproducible benefit to achievement test scores and long-term earnings, which I recall is one of the findings from some of the other long-term studies from pre-Ks in the 1960s, 70s, which is that even there, uh, the benefits were more higher rates of employment as opposed to higher earnings per year. Hmm. Um, but, uh, I, I, I think it's, I, I think it's a really, it's a really interesting thing. And I, I guess I share Matt's curiosity about like, uh, and, and, and yours Libby, like what, what's the mechanism there that would explain a really clear increase in discipline that doesn't, that doesn't cash out in these other ways. 
more research needed. Always the best. Um, well, I mean, it's true. They, these programs have continued to expand, so we should be able to get long-term data on more cities and, you know, perhaps get a get a richer understanding of what's happening. Um, so I think I'll leave it there. Uh, thank you so much, Derek, for joining us. Thank you, Libby, for coming on the show. Always a pleasure. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors, our producer, Eric Janikas. Uh, and the Weeds will be back on Friday. Happy birthday, everybody. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.